This is Out of Our Minds. I am Nathan. You'll also be hearing from pastors Tim Bailey and Jake Menzel as we go into part two of a discussion that we recorded on things that we've learned from Russia. Not so much the current Russia-Ukraine conflict, but more generally, Russian history. You'll, you'll get the drift. We use it as a springboard for all kinds of things that I think you'll find interesting and edifying. But speaking of interesting and edifying, if you or a young man you know is interested in the pastorate, you should check out newgenevaacademy.com. The church needs shepherds after God's own heart, shepherds who have compassion, skill, and knowledge to actually feed the sheep. And men like that need good training, and good training can be hard to find. Legacy seminaries are expensive. They have gender-neutered goals. They're not actually interested in training men to be shepherds to Christ's bride. But New Geneva desires to get back to the old paths where pastors trained pastors in the local church. So NGA's program is going to partner with the local church to provide rigorous and affordable training to shepherds, creating our prayer is elders and pastors after God's own heart. That is the goal of New Geneva Academy. You can check us out and learn more at newgenevaacademy.com. Can we morph into Russia? Yes. So while we're talking, I'm thinking about that article I've had you both read from the New Yorker about what Russian women said as soon as the Iron Curtain fell. Do you remember that article? came out back in probably 92, 90, 93, somewhere around that. And what happened was this journalist went over to Russia and she began to interview a number of leading women in Russia. And most or all of them were feminists. And it said that in the article. And it was fascinating because they'd take her to the best daycare center of the most elite people in this city and that city. So it was like the daycare center for the Politburo. And this author, and you find her being very uncomfortable with what she's writing. And she says, you know, I go into these nurseries and in every single nursery, I saw the same thing, which is that the men were cringing in the corner and the little girls were going through my purse and talking and yapping and the boys were silent and completely disengaged. And what she's saying is they were oppressed by the women. They were oppressed by the women leading the daycare center. They were oppressed by the girls that had the women's favorite attention. And then she quotes a psychiatrist. So the psychiatrist is a woman, and she's a feminist. This psychiatrist said, basically, all our men are killing themselves with vodka. And they're weak, and nobody has any respect for them. And all the women are super women and achievers. And she said, I find myself wishing that we could go back to the strong Decembrist men. I never forget reading that. And she said, can we recover manhood? Can we recover the woman being the minister of interior affairs and the man being the minister of exterior affairs, external affairs? And this was this long article in The New Yorker. Mm -hmm. Recently, Andrew Dion had some Ukrainian men come into his church, and one of them was about to get married. And I sent the article to Andrew, and I said, Andrew, give this to this Ukrainian man who's about to get married, because I suspect that he and his wife are going to be suffering some of the consequences of 
the emasculation of Russian men and Ukrainian men. I'm not getting into the war here. But anyhow, well, the guy read it and the guy said to Andrew, that's exactly true. Well, that's where America is. America is going into the socialism that came into Russia back in the 1800s. It's going into the emasculation of men that Russia was intentionally trying to accomplish by breaking down the nuclear family, by relegating the man to an enforced, identical nature of woman, having women work in positions that prior had been male positions, both Mao and Stalin, and the whole movements of communism in China and Russia were the same in trying to remove allegiance to a home so that the allegiance to the state was just absolutely ironclad. And of course, what ended up happening is that the women led society. Well, now America is exactly going into that, where we pat ourselves on the back for having women mayors, women judges, women doctors, women lawyers, women pastors, women preachers, women State Department, Secretary of State, and the men are not going to fight the women, okay? And we have to realize that this country, in many ways, lost the Cold War. We are becoming what Russia is repenting of. And Putin says this, okay? Putin absolutely says this. We tried it. It didn't work. And so I want people to have a context that when you study Russia, you actually are going back and reading the history of where we're headed. Well, yeah, Putin says, we tried it, it didn't work, and we're not going to let you enforce it, impose it on us again. And that's why we're fighting over the Ukraine. We've already had this happen in our backyard, and we're not going to have it anymore. Not to get too much into (laughs) Ukraine. Yeah, I subscribe on Twitter. This guy just publishes vintage Soviet propaganda posters that they would have hanging back in the USSR. And the two things that you always see is these painted images, a lot like Rosie the Riveter or something like Mm -hmm, that, of these mm -hmm. women with broad shoulders Mm -hmm. and clean faces and big smiles, and they'll be holding industrial equipment Mm -hmm. or something, and it'll have something about women being in the workplace. And then you see this motif reoccur again and again and again. You see astronauts, like little cartoon astronauts, and they're up in space, and they're looking around with kind of a cynical expression on their face. It'll say, he's not up here. There is no God. We've been to space and we didn't find him. And those are the two cartoon representations that they well, just Well, actually, over and over that's again. true. Historically, is the cosmonauts, the Sputnik. That's the notorious statement by the cosmonaut. I can't remember his name. He was up there and he didn't see God. Because there was a famous cartoon, political cartoon in the U.S. back when I was a child. And the cartoon was Sputnik in space. And a guy looking out and up and saying, there is no God here. I don't see any God here. But there's a humongous hand under the space capsule holding the space capsule in space. And it's an image from my youth. But yeah, we have to realize that probably Corinth is not unlike San Francisco in that it flips sexuality upside down. We always think that the Apostle Paul was in a patriarchal world. But you read the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, you read the history of bisexuality in the ancient world, you read about the nature of the world that Paul was writing to. And bisexuality, there was no homosexuality, there's still no homosexuality, it's bisexuality. And if you don't know why I'm saying that, read The Grace of Shame. But 
classical scholars will tell you what that world was like. And what we have to realize is that when the Apostle Paul wrote and rebuked women for taking authority over men, it was because women were taking authority over men. And so I took Greek from a classicist at UW-Madison, and she'd been to Bryn Mawr. She had her doctorate. She'd been chairman of the Department of Classics. One day, none of us could get the translation of a sentence because it just didn't make any sense because it was like not everyone Corinth can be or something like that. And people were trying different word orders to get the translation. And I was the stupidest student in the class. And all of a sudden, I looked at Mrs. Fowler, Professor Fowler, and I said, Professor Fowler, not everyone can live in San Francisco. And she laughed, and she said, that's it exactly. Well, look at the Apostle Paul and how he deals with feminism. And so then you look at the testimony of these feminist women in Russia as the Iron Curtain falls, and then you look at America today, and you look at the pastors around you and our Christian celebrities, and you have a choice. And Russia is very instructive, very instructive about the enemies that we, who are pastors and elders and older Titus II women, face in fighting for the protection of the sheep. And what I've been learning, so you mentioned that I quote Solzhenitsyn, he's been a hero my whole life. I had a triptych, if you remember, over my desk of him as a young man, a middle-aged man, an old man, done by Bonnie Suplee, Dr. Suplee's daughter at Columbia Bible College. She did it for my father because my father had Solzhenitsyn as a hero, and he had it in his office. And by the way, another guy that couldn't manage his home life, right? Or is that unfair? <laughs> or is that just to interrupt the flow with it? Well, go ahead and open that up for people because I think that's an important thing to say. My memory is that he had a mistress and the she was like, that whole thing was like his muse, and that's the way yeah. that he approached it. If you read Scammell, Michael Scammell's bio of him, Solzhenitsyn didn't like Scammell's bio, although he gave him a lot of access. But if you read the biography, Solzhenitsyn committed adultery with a woman when he was married to his first wife, and he then divorced his first wife. And he told her something to the effect that his creative motivation, inspiration required his relationship with this woman, that it was helpful to his creative oeuvre, that this was part and parcel of his life mission because it was so helpful to him. And then he moved into the U.S. I think, if I'm not mistaken, he was not actually married to her when he moved to the U.S., I could be wrong about that, but I think he lived with her for a while without benefit of marriage. But he was a very good husband. She was a very good wife. And he was a very good father. <laughs> and so what we're really left with is, if anybody's ever read Paul Johnson, the historian from Oxford, you know that Johnson committed adultery. And his life was exposed. And he's the author of Intellectuals where he hammers all these people we're talking about for being adulterers, okay? Right. And honestly, Nathan, what I would say to you is, we have another hero, and that's King David. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and isn't it true that the way we know men who are worth following is the fact that we see their sins, and that no man whose sins you don't know is worth following? Because he's a stuffed shirt. 
And I don't mean men that say, I have to admit that I have done such and such. That's just bogus. It's a lifestyle of puncturing anybody's hero worship of him. And so Solzhenitsyn's like that, Paul Johnson's like that, King David's like that, Paul's like that, the Apostle Paul. Jesus isn't like that. Although I've been thinking recently about the fact that Jesus actually is completely unlike the grand poobahs, the stuffed shirts that everybody adulates in evangelicalism and reform circles, because can you imagine any of them putting up with Peter talking to them the way Peter talked to Jesus? Jesus obviously had a meek and humble approach to being the leader of the Twelve that caused them to hurt him constantly. Can we use that as an example of leadership? You know, you're talking about being hurt by junior high kids, and I I was just sitting here thinking nobody will believe him. But that is the constant life of pastors and preachers. The junior high kids don't believe me. That's the problem. I know, (laughs) I know, I know. And that's why I keep telling dads, would you please explain to your children how they hurt you? Not in the pathetic wounded healer way, but in a way that demands that your sons realize they have to help you carry the weight and that it's hard to carry it and they can help you. I had that conversation with Taylor one day where I got tired of him giving me a sort of pro forma greeting when I'd come home at the day. And I finally had him, Taylor, stand up and come in here. So he comes up, stands a foot from me. And I look in his face and I say, Taylor, do you know that all day, every day I deal with conflict? Do you know how many people I have to talk to? Do you know the difficulty of my work? And of course, at this point, Taylor's kind of intimidated because I'm being aggressive in telling him how hard my life is, which of course, the manosphere would think you should never do that with your sons because it's weak. (laughs) And then I looked at him and I said, Taylor, do you know why I do all that work? No, dad, why? I do that work so when I come home, you will stand up and smile and kiss me and hug me and say, hi, Dad. And so that's what you were saying to the junior high kids. Mm. We have to bear the responsibility of helping our fathers. It's just such a basic thing. So I don't mind. I was so demoralized when I read that he committed adultery and went and married another woman and excused himself by talking about his creative needs. And I was so disgusted about Paul Johnson. but. I recognize myself in those men. <laughs> Trust me. And so, anyhow, I don't know how we got there. You were talking about Solzhenitsyn. You said, well, is he re- really worth listening to and emulating? And the fact is, yes. Solzhenitsyn is probably up with Joe Sobrin, Augustine, Calvin, Luther. He's that important to me. And reading the Red Wheel series of his- history of the killing of the Tsar and the real Russian Revolution night time on March 1917 now, the th- third book in the series of five books, I think. It's just exactly what's been going on with COVID in the United States recently. Just mm-hmm. exactly. Everybody is despising authority, tearing it down, being critical of it, and nobody is cultivating a respect for authority, Okay. And it's fascinating because it was that vacuum into which Stalin stepped. And you know what's coming as you read this, just the hatred of authority, all the intellectuals showing all their mistakes and all, and everybody else was the problem and they were the solution. But when it actually came time for them to remove the czar, 
They had no clue how to govern, none. And they hadn't prepared. They destroyed authority. And so there was no respect for authority. Not to be heavy-handed and play the Nazi card, but you've described the Weimar Republic too, haven't you? I mean, isn't that just the same decade? Yeah, and my dad used to say when Nixon was president, he despised Nixon. And I know that's a shock probably to people hearing this, but dad used to say that when we attack authority, what we don't realize is that totalitarianism is what we become vulnerable to. And it's counterintuitive. You think that enlightened liberal like Joe Biden is what you become vulnerable to, but it's not. Joe Biden and Donald Trump are two versions of the same result of hatred of authority. I'm sorry to MAGA people for saying this, but nobody is working to call us to honor authority and to be thankful for the rule of law today. And we're sowing the wind and we will reap the whirlwind. And if you don't think killing millions, billions of children in the wombs of their mother, if you don't think that's the whirlwind, if you don't think that's the destruction of the rule of law to wipe out by genocide a whole class of beings who are handicapped by not being able to say no to you, I don't know what is the death of the rule of law. And of course, that also started in Russia, it was not uncommon for Russian women to have had five abortions. Under communism. Yeah. And Eastern Europe. We can talk about what we don't like about Putin. There's a lot not to like. You could almost call him a manosphere guru. Taking off his shirt and riding a horse. Is that real? Oh, yeah. There was a period where you were reading the Stalin biographies when that was a lot of what you were quoting and stuff. What kind of insights did you get specifically from that story? I don't think that Christians in America... And I'm not talking about liberals. I'm talking about Christians. I don't think Christians, Reformed Christians, conservative, I don't think any of us have any doctrine of sin anymore. No doctrine of sin. This is what I hear in Germany. There's no preaching about sin. I know it's going to be true in Taiwan. I know it's true in a huge percentage of the pulpits of the most conservative Reformed churches. They take sin as the underlayment. It's granted. Everybody that preaches grace says they don't need to be told they're sinners. They need to be told that Jesus has paid it all. It's the whole grace movement. And I've had a surfeit of, I grew up in Wheaton. This is all I've ever heard from pastors, from books, from Gentle and Lowy. Everybody is convinced that a monotone diet of wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all sin. And it's a wonderful hymn, but it's only wonderful to a man like me, who has no illusions that I expect to find three surprises in heaven. One, to find some people there I didn't think were going to be there. Two, to find some people aren't there that I thought would be there. And third, greatest surprise of all, to find myself there. And So I cannot abide what is written and consumed by Christians in America today. I cannot abide it. And reading the history of Stalin is a good way of me seeing what's going on in America today. It's very different. We don't have a psychotic, neurotic sociopath in the White House right now because it's very hard for a man who's asleep to kill everybody. (laughs) But you look at what we're doing to our children in the womb, 
And the statistics on that absolutely dwarf anything Stalin and Hitler together did, even add in Mao, and it's just tiny. And Stalin was mind-boggling in his fears, and he killed 90% of his secret police and his army officers, his military officers, because he just killed anybody that he thought could possibly be a threat to him. And so people were constantly coming to him, outing somebody else, supposedly, who was plotting revenge or plotting to remove Stalin. And so Stalin would then take that person in on the testimony of this person and kill them. And all you were doing was buying yourself a few months if you were outing other people, because then you got outed. And literally 90%. He killed so many of his military officers that Hitler actually said about Stalin, that man is a lunatic, quote, unquote. <laughs> and so I find reading the history of Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao, the history of the Great Famine, of the Cultural Revolution, reading Golgo's Dead Souls, reading Solzhenitsyn's history of the Russian Revolution, reading Solzhenitsyn's autobiographical account of his 20 years in the West, and how much we hated him and opposed him, and how much he hated the press. Reading One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, reading his Gulag Archipelago, reading his satire about the evil. I find it bracing because it bears resemblance in history to what I read in Scripture. It has real sin, real wickedness, real grace, and it's such a relief after the cloying, sentimental, cheap, unbearable lightness of Christianity in America to me. Now, I don't know. Maybe that shouldn't be broadcast because people might just say, what, I'm a misanthrope? But I'm not. I love people. But I just find that nobody actually acknowledges the sin and suffering of life anymore. Yeah, I was wondering, and maybe you have thoughts about this, Jake, as you were talking, I'm not sure that you actually described my generation's counterfeits. I think maybe you described your generation's counterfeits. Like when you grew up, it was gentle and lowly. And yeah, sure, gentle and lowly was just published a couple of years ago. But like the people that I interact with don't take that kind of stuff seriously. They don't care about the gospel coalition as much. I would say the kind of church that I would find myself in if I wasn't at the church that I'm at would be a church that would have some version of beautifully brokenness. Um, like when I went and I had a church in Lafayette, I was part of a church plant and it was a young man and he would talk a lot about sin. It just wasn't our sin. It was and the ways he, you were hurt. Yeah, it was ways hard. you were hurt. And then he would do another thing that was parallel to that, which would be this sort of performative... I remember he did a sermon where he went off on female genital circumcision stuff in the Middle East and described it in great detail. And it was really painful to listen to. And he was tearing up and it was the depravity of this world, the depravity. And there was a certain kind of catharsis to it. But I found the whole thing cheap and disgusting. Well, we're not talking about you here. We're talking about your generation. Yeah. And I'm telling you, gentle and lowly is hitting your generation because I've talked to pastors around the country who are getting boxes of this stuff and pastors who are your age who liked it until somebody warned them. And I would say that talk about female genital mutilation and 
human trafficking. That's so in vogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it was 10 years ago, at least. Well, human trafficking hit 10 years ago. I don't know. Female FGM was a big thing around the same time. Yeah, this would have been like 2004 or so, 2006. But you brought those things up. You said you had a church planning pastor, and I would say this is exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about there being no sin. There's no sin. And you say, oh, no, 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 there was sin, but it was sin of people out there. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, yeah. How many sermons, how many blog posts do I have to read of smart men talking about all the problems of people that aren't in his church? Right. I guess I was afraid when you said no sin, what some of our listeners might picture is like, what I need to do is go to dresses what I need to do is go to a church where they decry gay drag shows and where they decry yeah, I think what I'm trying to say is there's a certain old school kind of SBC church where all the women are wearing dresses and all mm-hmm. the men are wearing suits mm-hmm. and they don't have any sin, but you can also go to a church where they're decrying gay drag shows and it feels kind of gritty and visceral somehow but out there trying to groom your kids yada 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 and the reality is that there are no gay drag queens in the church in front of me and it's not to say that that's not an issue that we need to talk about or acknowledge but you have to actually address the sins of your people yeah this is a flashpoint in our discussions with people but i want to listen You should regularly examine your heart and confess your sins because of your pastor's preaching to you on Lord's Day. He should look at you. You should know he's talking to you and about you. And you should feel the weight of God's servant calling you to faith and to repentance and to love God. This is what I'm talking about. And if you think you have that, I suspect you don't. In other words, it's not an easy thing to weigh whether or not that's going on in your church, because whoever would choose a church where that's not going on? Some people would say, well, but I regularly feel convicted. I'm not talking about people who have a tender conscience. I'm talking about whether or not the church, I just keep looking at the people that we lift up as heroes. And I don't care who your hero is. You can have Gospel Coalition, you can have punk rockers with screamo, emo Christian lyrics. It doesn't matter to me who it is. What I want to know is, do your leaders demonstrate tender consciences towards God about themselves? Do they consciously destroy any hero worship in you about themselves? And do they truthfully speak to you about your sin? I mean, That has always been the touchstone of biblical preaching. That's what the Apostle Paul did in the Areopagus, and he didn't even know the men, and he took on their sins. It's Acts preaching where, you killed him! You know, they keep saying, you killed him about Jesus. It's certainly Edwards. If you've ever read Lloyd-Jones, if you've ever read Luther, if you've ever read a sermon by Calvin, we don't have any of that today. I'm not saying we don't have any. We do have some. But It's the exceptions that prove the rule. When you go into a church where a man of God is calling you to repent of your idolatry, of your greed, of your lust, of this, that, and the other thing, I'm not talking about making some reference to pornography, and your hair stands up and you think, oh my goodness, I had grown complacent. 
that's the kind of preaching that we need. And the reason it's not there is we've surrounded ourselves with teachers who scratch our ears where we want to be scratched. And so, I don't know. You tell me why I read Solzhenitsyn. I just find it so refreshing to have a man who simply wanted to document what happened in his lifetime. The truth. What would you recommend that people read him? A man is listening to this and is like, well, I should read some Solzhenitsyn. Where do I start? Where do I start? I guess one day in the life. A day is in the, the life is small. The short one, yeah. That's what I'd say. You can read his Nobel speech. Actually, it might be a... Yeah, you can do that. You can read his address to the AFL-CIO. In some ways, maybe the most helpful thing to do would be to read his Between Two Millstones, which is a two-volume autobiographical account of him coming into the West and his conflict with the West. Because what he ends up doing is just constantly exposing the hypocrisy of the West political leaders and particularly their journalists. He hated the New York Times. And it was because his between two millstones, the two millstones are the KGB and the Western elite. And he hated them both equally. And one time he actually said to the journalists, he said, you're worse than the KGB. Hmm. Worse. And so that might be helpful for people to read, to see the conflict between Solzhenitsyn and the West elite who thought they were going to love him and hated him immediately. What did they hate about him? He was constantly calling us out for our decadence. He said that Russia would have a much better hope of being Christian and truthful after communism than America after decadence. And he was just pointing out our hypocrisies, our godlessness, our immorality. And people were always getting ready to decorate him, to laud him. And he was never under the impression that gratitude should control how he reacted. <laughs> <laughs> 